You're listening to the Central Station Podcast, where we bring you true stories of what life in the outback is really like and why many wouldn't live anywhere else. So pull up a stump, pop the billy on, or crack a cold one as we talk to the men and women who call some of the most remote parts of Australia home. Welcome back to part two of our chat with Munro Hardy. Do you remember when I said in part one that even though he's only 35 years old, Munro has managed to fit a lot of things into his life? Well, this episode is the epitome of that because we've just gone from a three-parter to a four-parter because what I had planned for this episode, we only got through half of it and it's almost two hours long. Anyway, if you haven't listened to part one, make sure you go and listen to that first because this episode picks up right where we left off and there are so many different stories, adventures and some crazy yarns in this one, but also a lot of lessons and a lot that can be learnt from Munro. So I hope you enjoy it and uh, make sure you check back in when we get around to recording and uploading parts three and four. And here's another update. I've actually decided to split this episode into two because it's so long. Uh, so what was going to be episode or part two will now be parts two and three, which just made our four-parter into a five-parter. Anyway, so here's uh, part two and part three will be out exactly the same time. So um, make sure you listen to part two first. Munro, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you, Steph. We made it. I know. Well, for everyone listening, we actually attempted to start recording this episode almost eight hours ago. Uh, but as I said in the last episode, Munro is a very busy man. He's got lots of balls in the air, irons in the fire, juggling plates, a full plate, no. <laughs> I'm mixing up my analogies here. Um, but yeah, there's a lot going on. So before we get into this episode, do you want to give people a tiny snapshot of what's happened in the last eight hours? Yeah, there's a lot on. Um, you've probably got us at one of the busiest times of year, actually, right in the middle of hay season now. Um, we've had uh, a good weather system off the back of the cyclone that hit the West Coast recently, um, which has been good for us for continuing our growth of of our different crops. Um, but now we've had a couple of days of dry weather and a bit of heat. Um, this morning we woke up to a good southeasterly breeze, a nice dry, cool breeze, and so it seems touch wood the the dry season's here now. But that means hay season's here as well. So we've launched into mowing, raking, and and baling. So we we're flat out at the moment. Got to make hay while the sun shines, exactly. as you said in the last episode. And I won't give too much away, but Munro was also very busy today because he cheated on Central Station and he's been doing things with other media organisations. So, you know, it's a big media day for him, but you'll, we'll, we'll talk more about that when it, when it's coming to air. So very lucky that we finally got in, you know, just us little podcasts. <laughs> he looks so uncomfortable as I say that. <laughs> no, no, it's great. And uh, we've just done a bit of prep for this episode and realised that I promised you guys a three-parter, but it's looking like it's going to be a four-parter. You've just done a lot of stuff in a very short period of time. You think we'll fit it in? 
Um, well, we've learnt that you're not going away as soon as I thought you were. So, yeah, we've got two more after this. I'm going to come stalk <laughs> you again. Uh, if everyone listening, you'll remember in the last episode how when Mano left with the agronomist, I just sat there waiting, being like, yeah, well, if I don't leave, he'll come back and we'll do it. So that worked the first recording time. Today didn't work so much because after six hours, I was like, all right, I'm going back to town. You come to me when you're done. <laughs> No, it's all right. We'll get you back. But yeah, if people want to hear more about the hay, you're going to have to wait till part four because we are going in chronological order. So at the end of the last episode, we finished off with you'd, you'd kind of taken us through your gap year and in a uni break, you went up to the territory to Annabrew. Yes. Uh, an opportunity for a job came up. So Annabrew's station just, so it would be like an hour and a half or two hours out of Darwin. It's not, uh, it's not that far out. Yeah, an hour and a half, I think. Yeah. yeah depends um, who's driving. Yeah. <laughs> Territory speed Might limits, be a bit longer so. now. There, there used to be 130 k's that road, but it's uh, 110 now. Is it? Yeah. Oh, interesting. I haven't obviously haven't been down there for a hot minute. But you you basically finished the episode saying like you left uni to take a job there after I think a year and a half or something at uni. Yeah. Um, you just could not pull yourself away from the opportunity to come back up north. So let's pick up where we left off. Yeah, well, I, I was trying to study remotely from Annabrew, um, but pretty quickly realised that the internet connection wouldn't allow that. So deferred for six months, thinking that I'd get back to it the next year. But then just, you know, steadily learned more about the cattle industry and learned, well, the more that I learned, the more I realised there was more to learn. Um, and so it was really interested in seeing more of the supply chain. So that wet season, once we'd finished all our mustering, um, we had cattle on the floodplain because, uh, that year at Annabrew we'd actually been burnt out. So we mustered a lot of our cattle and put them out on, on the Melaleuca floodplains, funnily enough. Um, is that the place you know. spoke about in the last episode? Yeah. That was where I worked initially when I came to the territory. Yep. Which is all but next door, just up the road. Anyhow, yes, so from there, uh, we pulled up for the wet season, gave me an opportunity to get back to uni to go and pick up my ute and pack up my room and come back north for the wet season. And then I headed into the Berrimah quarantine yards, the export yards there. And I, I just wanted to see that part of the supply chain, what happens once they leave the station, cattle are quarantined, and then they go on the vessels overseas. Um, and so I rocked up, I drove up to the loading ramp where I saw a couple of guys standing and yarning next to a, a truck that was being loaded, um, went and introduced myself and told them what I was up to and, and what I wanted to do and how I wanted to have a look through the supply chain. And, and they said, well, they offered me a trial. Um, I was after a job for the wet and they said, all right, we'll come back later this afternoon. We're, we're loading a boat. We'll give you a go at that, um, which I did, came back. Uh, we spent all night loading. And then I think all day the next day, and in my mind, I feel like it went for three days, but I, I couldn't tell you how long it was, but it was a long time. Anyhow, those guys had, had come back and I'd been just working the backyards and bringing cattle up to the trucks. Um, and anyhow, the, when they arrived the next day or the day after the next day, I don't know how long it is, but they came to me and said, oh, you're, you're back, you've come back. And I said, come back, what do you mean? I haven't left. And anyway, they couldn't believe it, and uh, I'd I'd been there. It, well, it could have been thirty hours straight or whatever it was. It, it was a long time, and um, 
I said, oh, do I get the job? And they said, yeah, mate, you can have the job. No worries. Go and knock off and go to bed. Come back in a couple of days. No worries. Yeah, so that was a, an interesting start to the uh, the journey into quarantine and, and seeing the lot feeding scenario, I guess, before cattle hit the boats. So this would have been, I'm going to say, about 15 years ago. So, so a couple of years before the live export ban. It was... 2008, nine. Yeah. Okay. I can tell just from that story. I was like, you can tell that happened a while ago because these days there is no way in Hades that anyone is just driving a, just driving into a set of quarantine yards or an export depot and B, just walking up and being like, Hey, without someone being like, who are you? Where are you from? What do you want? And prove it. Whatever Sign you just in, said. Office, all of that. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Not, not just from a biosecurity purpose, but I suppose from the slew of, um, undercover people that have, have tried to infiltrate to, to yeah, do The activist know. groups, yep. yeah. So I was just like, wow, that you were greeted really kindly. <laughs> like that is a sign of the times. Yeah, yeah, it was. It was really a bit was. more, I think everyone's a bit more wary now when someone rocks up unannounced and yeah. unknown. So I'm glad yeah, you- the gates wouldn't be open like they were, I don't think. Either. Yeah, yeah. So, um, and no, you are right. It would have- it, quite possibly would have been well over 24 hours because I've loaded boats that have taken that long before. And it, um, yeah, it, it is. It's just like a never ending, never ending thing. It's, it's almost, it's, it's like you feel that last truck leaves and you're like, Oh, and then another one pulls up and you're like, and here we go again. Like, and it's just like a, a carousel that you can't get off. Yeah. It seems that way. Yep. So you got the job after, you know, that big stint. How long did you work there for? Um, it, it was only for that wet season, I think. Um, we had enough, enough cattle come through the yards that, uh, exporters had brought in. They had their own, own contracts that had, had come through the yard. So it was an opportunity actually to mingle and meet these exporters who were, um, traveling overseas and had their own, own markets, I guess, um, their own contacts over there and, and, it was really interesting to pick their brains about what happens overseas, but of course for me that was the next thing I had to learn. Um, so I then was really keen to go and see what happens on the vessels and see what happens in market overseas. Um, and I was really fortunate at that time, had some really interesting guys who were open to that and who actually encouraged me to do it and said, yep, come and do a bit of training then we'll put you on a boat and you can be the, the junior stockman on board. Um, and so then... Following that, over I can't actually think how long this would have been. Over another twelve month period in between, a bit of contract work and mustering for the next dry season. Um, either side of that, I jumped on a few boats. I went over to Indonesia and one vessel over to uh, Egypt as well, which was a, a long journey. Um, but fascinating to see what all happens through that supply chain. Tell me about your first boat. First boat. Um, well, I I went to Townsville first. I was inducted into the system there and we were doing a bit of work on the pens on the vessel before we were loading cattle. Um, so there's a couple of days of maintenance. Yeah. So what kind of, I guess, what kind of maintenance was involved? Was this a custom built livestock carrier or a converted uh, cargo ship? It was a converted cargo ship, actually. Yeah. So I was all focused on animal welfare, really, to make sure that the pens were up to scratch. Um, there was nothing that was going to bruise or bump the animals. Um, that we had feed troughs up to scratch, the water troughs that they were all cleaned, they were all working. Um, just going through everything with a, a fine tooth comb before we loaded cattle. 
Um, and we loaded for memory 16,000 in Townsville, uh, which took a, a couple of days. And then we, we came around to Darwin. We loaded again there before heading to Indonesia. And we, we had three stops along the way there. We went Panjang, Chickading, and then Jakarta, finished in Jakarta. Did you get seasick at all? No, no, no. It um, that would have been a pretty decent sized boat to carry that number ahead, though. It was a huge vessel, yeah, yeah. And so there's you know very little movement. It's it lists slightly either side when it's when it's such a big ship. It only sort of would rock and roll, I suppose you could say, um, a few degrees each side. So and it's so slow to move. You know, it would take a minute to get over to the left side, and then it you know a minute to come back and. Um, yeah, often you, you barely even notice it. It's quite subtle. Um, so, no, didn't notice any seasickness at all. No sea legs when I got off. And tell me about the voyage. I'm, I'm just thinking I've only done three boats myself and they're all – it's funny, they're all so different but also similar. The My favourite part about each voyage, though, is the crew. Like, the, usually there's only one or two Aussies on board. Maybe I think there's three on one of them. But the crew's – I guess that it, it is changing. Like one one vessel that's on it was like a Tongan crew, but the other two were Filipino. And far out, you beat some characters and some really cool people. And then just getting to go up to the the bridge, up to the bridge. Oh yeah, my God, it's been a while. It's been almost ten years since I did my last boat. Um, and talk, and you know, learn about like the rankings of the captain and the bosun. And it's really interesting, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. for where the vessel might be owned. Um, yeah, the memory yeah. we had an Italian crew, yeah. the actual ship's crew. So all the the skipper, the first mate. Um, yeah, that was my first boat. He was an Italian captain, I think. Oh, there you go. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, and then we had Filipino guys as well who um, were the guys that worked with us. Um, well, I think we had four Aussie stockies on board and a vet. Um, and so our job as stockies was to monitor cattle every day, every hour of every day. You're up at Sparrows making sure cattle are standing up and ready for a feed. Um you're looking at each individual animal in their pen and so you're looking for snotty noses or watery eyes or any of that type of thing um, and keeping a close eye on their feed program, how much feed they're eating because you want them not to leave much feed in their trough. You want them not to be hungry when you feed them but just to know that feed time is feed time so that they all come to a trough, they're all active, um, which makes it easier I think overall to, to monitor health. And so once we get a bit of a an eye of what they are eating, we can then uh, determine what we need to feed them for the next feed. So they get feed three times a day. And so the Filipino guys are the ones who run around and pour the feed into the feed troughs for the cattle. Um, so I'll, I'll walk around my decks and scratch on the on the blackboard for each pen how much feed I want to go out. And then the boys hit the deck, guns blazing. They've all got a bucket each and they're running around and Tipping the feed pellets into the into the troughs and it's go 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 and they've always got a grin on their on their face and they're always full of energy and full of laughter. Yeah, it's great fun. There's so I've got pictures. I had my 25th birthday on a boat going from Darwin to Malaysia and there's me. I think the bosun had long hair or longish hair and I've got I packed I don't know why but I packed a hair straightener and I was giving him curls with a hair straightener and they put on some karaoke from I don't know where I didn't know a single one of the songs and they're all singing karaoke and it was the funniest birthday I, I think I gave quite a few of them I curled their hair like all my it was just ridiculous. we had the same thing karaoke was massive they yeah. loved it and hard it drives and swapping movie. movies on your hard drives oh yeah yeah yeah, yeah. I remember a song actually they used to sing um tonight's gonna be a good night what's that song Oh, from Black Eyed Peas? Could be. Yeah. Tonight's gonna like um 
Yeah. Oh, yeah. This black eyed peas. Um, that was it. Like, how's that guy? Oh, let's let's take a moment and do a quick Spotify check. I was just trying What's to get to you to, to sing a second time on a podcast when you said oh, you would never do it again. Oh, yeah. I got you started, nearly got you. Oh, my God. No, nobody wants to hear that. Um, what is that song called? I just heard it the other day. I Got a Feeling. I Got a Feeling, is yeah. it? Yeah. Ooh, the tonight's going to be. Two in a row. Yeah. Gotcha. Ooh, sorry, everyone. Um, but also, going back to what you're talking about, I guess that, that explains why there's four of you on a ship for that number of cattle because it essentially, and not to in, like, uh, insinuate that this, that being on a vessel is like a game, but just I, I'm big on analogies as everyone would know. But to me, it's almost like a giant game of where's Wally because you're looking for the one that doesn't fit in. The one, like you said, that has a snotty nose that's maybe got a swollen leg, not standing on their leg right. I don't know anything, bit of bloat, whatever it is. You're looking for the one, a one with dull eyes, one that's kind of, got his head down or, or whatever that, it is, anything that's any, not the norm. And you have to – it's almost like speed reading in a way. It's funny how I guess if you've been around livestock before though, which is a big uh, prerequisite for people to be able to go on the boats is to have extensive experience working with cattle back on the ground here or wherever they've come from, is that it, it, like even now if I got to feel like you can just – you don't have to stop there and like spend – three minutes looking up and down every beast nose to tail, like you can kind of just pick it up. You know what you're looking for. Yeah, they stand out. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. And so that's, I guess that's, I was like, oh, I hope nobody thinks, oh, yeah, like I said, it's not, I'm not saying it's a game, but it's just an analogy I use that it's like a where's Wally you've got to try. And the and the crew are always also really helpful that, oh, I found, again, with my whole three voyages, you know, so much experience. But I found that they were also, because this is what they do all the time and they spend like, almost 10 months of the year on these boats and whatnot, that they'll pick up things and come and let you know and, like, mm. it's like a backup pair of eyes. Yeah, definitely, yeah. 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 Um, and you've always got vets on duty as well walking around doing the same thing. And whatever it is, you catch them, I think, and then you obviously you draft them out and they get taken to a hospital pen and that's when they're more closely monitored, they're, they're fed different things, they're treated with, with uh, whatever treatments they need at the time for whatever ailment they might have. Yeah, and they get the star treatment from a vet. And it's funny with the number of cattle, say if there's four of you, so let's say you had about 4,000 head each. I don't know if you split it up like that or not. I know on each of my boats we just split it up by decks or areas so we each had. So we never really checked on each other's cattle. We had our own areas. But with the number of cattle that you have to check over, you learn, and no matter how long or short the voyage is, like there are certain characters that present themselves and you you get to know different cattle on different – like there was this one – I did a boat to China – was dairy cattle, dairy heifers, and there was this one Jersey heifer. I called her Snooky because she was from Jersey, uh, which Jersey cow. So like Snooky from Jersey Shore, and she, you could go in there, and she would like, I'd sit down with her, cuddle her, she'd lick my face, like, <laughs> and I'm like, out of my, I think I had about four thousand to look after on that boat. I was like, out of that, I don't know how I found that one, but yeah, yeah, yeah. It's funny, isn't it? We uh, we actually had a couple of pens of buffalo. I, I forgot <gasps> about that. Really, um, young buffalo wieners and. They're they so inquisitive. Within a couple of days, they were following you all the way through the pen, the whole mob, and they walk around. Oh, and I would have been terrified to get in a pen with buffalo. No, they're so quiet, and they make the funniest noises. Yeah, no, they're pretty cool animals. Oh, yeah. okay. I just, yeah, you get through. I, I remember on that same dairy boat on one of the open decks. Um, I used to say like the cows would, the heifers would punk me all the time. Like there was some Frisian or Holstein, you know, the black and white ones, which I think both of those are black and white, aren't they? Yes, I just don't know. 
which ones they were, but you'd lay, I'd walk, I'd look down the end of the deck and I'd just see like a head sticking out on the floor, like they were laying down, eyes closed, you know, whatever, tongue out. And I'd be like, oh my God, something's sick or something's dead, whatever. And I'd like walk down really fast and then it would like open an eye and then like roll up and be like, oh, I was resting. Sorry. You're back. The again. amount of times they punked me, like I thought something was wrong and I'd be like, oh, get there. Completely fine. Mm. Just having a nap. There you go. Savage. Anyway, uh, so yeah, that boat, how much is it? And then, so did you end up, you did a whole, so that was the first wet season was in the quarantine yards was the second wet season, like the one following that you just did voyage after voyage after voyage. No, no, no. It was very ad hoc. Um, it was more so just to get a bit of an experience and understand what went on through the yeah. supply chain. It was never a career or a job long term. Yeah. So just opportunistic. Yeah. Whenever they absolutely. needed a hand. And- yep. And I'd try my hand up for it. Did you get to spend time in market at the other end or did you have to kind of go straight to a hotel then airport and come home? It was quite brief. We stayed in Jakarta for a night or two and we met a couple of importers actually and had a good yarn to them and heard about their process and where their markets are and where products actually end up, um, which is fascinating. I always wanted to get back and, and reconnect with those guys, but I just haven't had the opportunity to do that. Um, we should organize well, i love i'm like we should organize a trip as i'm about to have a baby because you have a quarantine dep- oh but it's not pre-export is it no 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 oh, i was like you run a quarantine yard now but it's not it's a it's not a it's not a it's not an export de- yeah no. because but cattle do, will cattle come into your yards before going up to darwin more so in a state if they've got to be spelled yeah and dipped. okay yeah. well we can still organize a trip though and just pop over to indo and Go, go look at some things. Yeah, well, while in the Young Livestock Exporters Network, um, we're looking at putting on a trip over there, there to, to send a few people over to go and explore the market over there and, and understand a bit more about how it all works. That's really cool. That, and I, for anyone listening, like if you get the opportunity, opportunity to apply, I would certainly do that because it was 2012, December. Don't know if I really thought about wet season, but I had contacted out of the blue, um, Greg Pankhurst, who, yeah. I think he's still in Indo. I don't know if he is actually, but he was over there for a long time running feedlots. Um, and I went over for two weeks just on my own to go like work in the feed, like volunteer in the feedlots and the advertising and just see it. Cause I just wanted to see. And I was so lucky that, that back then, even though it was post ban, like mm. him and a few other people welcomed me with open arms. Oh, good. Um, yeah. although Jetstar lost my luggage. So I did spend the first week wearing the same pair of clothes because, uh, when you're in the, like the boonies of Indonesia, as a big giant white woman relative to the regular people, um, the locals, their clothes do not fit you, so you cannot buy replacement clothes. I learned that in Zimbabwe. I lost my bag on the way to Zim uh, in Johannesburg and ended up spending four days, I think. Um, you would have been in- too little for their clothes, though, wouldn't you? Not too big. Oh, calm down. <laughs> I'm just thinking of, like, big, a- tall, strong no, you know, African in a, people. In a local, or it was a Zimbabwe soccer T-shirt. That was made for a kid. Yeah. Oh. And a tight pair of soccer shorts and a pair of <laughs> RM boots for four days walking around Where Zim like that. Where did you buy them from? Oh, flea market. One of the local Zim guys, Philip, if you're listening, he, uh, he <laughs> took me to a local market and said, I'll get you some stuff. And he did the bartering and he came back and gave me all this gear to he wear. He probably did just buy you kids clothes. Oh, he stitched me up. <laughs> Have you got, has anyone taken pictures of that? Was that on your Nuffield trip? 
That was not field trip. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So that's yeah. I've got some recent. photos of that. Yep. All right, guys, make sure you tune in for episode four. That's when we'll talk more about Nuffield and post some photos on our okay Instagram yep. and Facebook. <laughs> oh gosh. Anyway, um, God, look at me getting off track. So boats. Yep. So you're just doing it opportunistically. So going back, did you spend the next couple of years? I guess at Annabrew or what? What was no, next? I, I, I still, I just had a yearning to explore the territory. So um, that gap year kind of never ended. No, yeah, I kept rolling. Um, so Annabrew was really good. All right, so we just um, took a little break to try and I did this in someone else's episode actually, not that long ago because they couldn't remember they couldn't, they couldn't work out how old they were, and we had to go through and write it down or something like that. Anyway, um, it doesn't matter if we don't talk about things in order, but basically, I was just going to ask you like, what do you do after your kind of wet season of doing a few boats here and there? And I mean, you. Let's not even bother trying to go in chronological order because you've just done so many things and apparently have a really shocking memory. <laughs> <laughs> Chronolog- yeah. Chronologically, I do, I think. But um, uh, this this idea of the gap year continuing and you- I know where I went following those boats. Okay, where did you go? I came back and we were contracting for a year. Um, so I worked across in the west, Moolabula. We you don't say. Yeah, contract over there. Jane Sale, who- is behind Central Station. Her manages the company that owns Mullabor. There you go. There you do go. Wow. Small world. Um, yep. So we, we were there for a bit and we came to Aruna and then finished off at Alexandria, um, which took us right through into the build up and it started raining and got as much done as we could until we couldn't do any more for the, the next wet season coming in. So was this a new contracting crew, not the same guys that you spoke about on the last episode? I think they were just bull catching. They, they were just bull catching. Yeah. yeah. So this is a few years down the track now. So who were you working for then? Paul Brosnan. Oh, but and then but st- was it but contracting? Yes. So he was contracting at the time. He had a couple. That's of That's so funny yeah. because he's manager of um, Mullawalla now. Yeah. There you go. And I have spoken to him about trying to get him on the podcast. Um, I have been told it will never happen. I've been told by several people, but we all hold out hope, people, because he is. Well, his reputation precedes him. He's a really good cattleman and runs yeah. a good show and just so knowledgeable. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I remember let's all just spending days horseback behind a mob and, um, oh, the opportunities I had sometimes just when Paul was there with us and he's just such a gentle, calm force around, around a mob of cattle. And, and, you know, he walked me through his experiences and, and taught me a bit about horses and a bit about cattle and the industry. And it was just magnificent. Sitting there yarning to him in that sort of environment, I, yeah, I always look back fondly on those sort of memories. Yeah. See, Paul, I'll say nice things about you. Come on the podcast. Well, I was only with him very briefly. We split camps and when I went across to Aruna and then Alexandria, um, where I think he memory stayed on at Mullabula. Um, yeah, and we had crews sort of split out across the territory then. Uh, yeah, so that was only, that was one season again. So how did that contracting compare? So that's cattle work compared to the buffalo work, but not so much the, the work itself, but the, the contracting environment and the team. Because if people remember from the last episode, um, you know, it was a small group, all blokes, um, you know, not very many facilities and whatnot, um, you know, hard work. Well, I mean, it's going to be hard work no matter where you go and what you do, but how did it compare, I guess, in terms of the demographic and the living conditions and the social aspects? Yeah, all of that I think was much more advanced. They they had a great setup for their camp. We had 
Well, we had a camp trailer that we towed around with us. So we had a generator that that would hook up to. We had washing machines in there. We had fridges, freezers, had a camp kitchen in the trailer. Um, it was, it was quite good. We swagged it for the year mostly. Um, and demographic wise, yeah, we had quite a mix. Actually, we probably had an even split of guys and girls. Um, we had a, a backpacker from Europe, I remember. And yeah, it was busy. Contracting is a, you know, it's a pretty full on life. You're moving from one, one job to the next, one paddock to the next and mustering one day, processing the next, loading cattle and sort of do it all over again. And it's, it's go, go, go. But yeah, I mean, as a young person, it's magnificent. It's great fun. Did you still have your dog with you? Cause you mentioned in the last episode that I love you. I asked you all these questions and you're like, I don't remember. Do you know what? I actually totally lied about that. I realized later you asked if I had my dog that whole year and I, I looked back and thought, I lied about that. I didn't <gotta> have my dog. I had to send him home when I went to Rotham Park. They wouldn't take dogs. So I flew him from Brizzy down to home, back to the farm, back to the old man. So he wasn't with you at any of the rest of the episode? No. <laughs> <laughs> totally lied. It was just like one of those reactionary answers. Yeah, yeah. no, I had him stuff, yeah. Yeah, okay, cool. So I'm guessing he, he didn't come up, contract, did he just stay at home ever since? Like, or did he come he, back up with you? Yeah, he was up and down quite a few times. He's a well-travelled dog. Yeah. Um, and because I drove so much of that, um, that year actually, when I came home from overseas, I'd, I'd been home briefly and I I didn't drive up that year. I'd flown to Darwin and I caught the skinny dog from Darwin to Halls Creek. Greyhound bus, if anyone's wondering what that was, and also not envious of that at all. A long trip. Oh, it takes like three bus. times as long on a Greyhound bus. Yeah, yeah. And oh, for memory, we got off it. It was late at night. And uh, I just remember looking around. We got off at Servo and not much was happening. And in the distance, I could just hear this squeak. A squeak, it was like a squeaky wheel. And it was pretty dark apart from the lights in the servo. And anyway, it was this local mob who'd run out of fuel up the road and there was about six of them pushing this car into the servo to come and fuel up. Um, and they had been pushing it for a long way. Welcome to Halls Creek. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then anyhow, Paul met me there and he had a new swag for me and I had my bag and out we went out to camp and we, we got into it from there. There yeah. you go. Yep. So for the contracting, did you – I'm just wondering if at any of these places did you ever feel like, oh, this is really cool, I want to stay here and I want to do this, or did you still just have that appetite of like, all right, cool, done this, and it's easy to kind of say goodbye, wrap it up and move on to the next? Well, because so much of that work was so seasonal, like you're contracting through the dry season and then pretty much the whole camp splits up and goes home. A lot of people from down south Mm. and they went back to New South Wales or back to Victoria and I – just always wanted to start north and turn my hand to something else. Like, what yeah. else is up here that I can yeah. do? But um, you never found yourself, say, like when you got to Alexandria, Alexandria you're like, oh, I love this homestead complex. I love this country. I love the cattle. Like, you know, the, like you're there oh, as a contractor, the but there would have been some permanent stuff. There was never anywhere that one, one of made you like kind of pull up and be like, all right, I'll come back and just see if I can get a full time job here or even for the season. Like, cause I know from, cause I've got advanced knowledge guys, cause I did. We did some background work, but I know you like you. You keep moving on and doing things. Um, but did you ever want to just pull up and set up camp somewhere? Um, no, I mean there are a lot of places I loved, and a lot of oh, everyone I worked with. I think I had a great time with and, and really enjoyed it. Um, been back to a few places, but 
Yeah, I never really wanted to put roots down anywhere for a long time. I just wanted to keep learning, keep growing. And I mean, you, you can do that in that one spot. You might spend a couple of years and move into leadership positions and, and move up the ranks, but it wasn't quite the journey that I wanted to do. Um, I wanted to find that niche for me. Where is the value? Where is my opportunity specifically? And yeah, I, it, it was a lot of years of, of still roaming and learning. Yeah. You really are like the boy version of me. Aside from the fact that I can't fly a helicopter and I'm um, tall. so <laughs> Now, you mentioned off-air just before that at some point, again, noting that we're not going in chronological order. Um, so, we're talk- in this episode, we're going to talk about all these random adventures you had. And so far, we've you know, you've worked on stations, you've contracted, you've been at the export depot or the quarantine yards and you've gone on boats. But you actually ventured outside of the cattle industry at different points in time too when it was kind of like a ping pong match, like in, out, in, out. And you mentioned um, just before when we were trying to work out the order of things and realising that we weren't going to be able to do that, that you went and worked at a vineyard. Oh, yes. Yeah, that one. Um, Just seems a bit random. That was after my voyage to Egypt because I ended up spending a month in Egypt traveling around as a tourist. Um, and then I had great plans to travel Europe following that because I had a swag full of cash after after 30 days on a boat and not spending anything. Um, I had planned to travel Europe east to west. I was going to go through Jordan and Israel um, due to a few circumstances, I got pretty crook at one point. I ended up changing those plans, went to England, um, caught up with my cousins over there. And then, anyway, I spent six months in Europe, came home from there. And it was at one of those points where I thought, right, what am I doing now? Am I going to go back to uni? Am I going to go down south? Um, hook in down there, get set up and start my career down south or, Will I go back north? Um, had you intended, sorry, had you intended on staying in Europe or staying overseas for six months when you got on that boat? No. No, How? no. This is, guys, for anyone that is single and without a mortgage and anything else like that, that this is the beauty. You might be like, and I've certainly been like this, like, oh, I'm never going to have a per or whatever. This is the beautiful part of that part of your life and that situation, that point in time when you don't have those strings. Go and just do what Monroe did. Sorry. I just, I'm like, oh, yeah. I remember doing things like that. Like, Probably don't do it the way I did it. Yeah. Well, I was curious when you said you got sick. I was like, food? Put, sick. Like- kidnapped. Oh, <gasps> really? Don't <laughs> skip over that part of the story. This is where we want all the good yarns in the podcast. Who'd you get kidnapped by? Oh. Was it? You want a fifth podcast? Yes. No, oh I'll, I'll make it short. Um, what happened? I'd been all the way down south to Aswan, which is southern Egypt. Had an awesome time on the way down. Went to the Valley of the Kings, saw a lot of pyramids, temples, all the, all the beautiful things that Egypt's got. It was magnificent, fascinating. Can't remember where, but we got on a felucca, which is a Nile type of sailing yacht, um, and sailed the Nile for three or four days, I think, for memory. There was a German couple on there and an, an Italian guy and then the skipper and his first mate. Um, anyway, it was a very comfortable, relaxed cruise up the Nile. But we then disembarked in Luxor. Luxor, I remember Luxor. And anyhow, I got off and was walking to a hotel that I'd already booked and this bloke came up to me on his 
donkey. He had a donkey and cart and I was sitting there and he came up beside me as I was walking and he said, hey, mister, mister, where are you going? I take you, I take you. I said, no, thanks, mate. I'm just around the corner, just going to my hotel. And he, he kept coming with me all the way. He said, I'll take you. I'll show you town. I'll show you the markets. I'll show you this. I said, no, thanks, mate. No, no. It had been a, a long couple of days and I was just going to go and unpack and put my head down for a bit. And I said, maybe later, mate. Maybe later. He goes, okay, maybe later. When later? And I said, I don't know, mate. Five o'clock. I'm coming out of the hotel. I'll go for a walk. He goes, okay. I'll see you later. And this is before lunchtime. And, uh, Anyhow, I hung around the hotel for most of the day and, and poked my head out later that afternoon and sure enough, there he was waiting on his donkey and cart. And I felt sorry for him because he'd been waiting for me. He said, Mr, Mr, it's now later. I take you now. I take you. I said, all right, mate, no worries. So I jumped on his donkey with him and he said, where do you want to go? Like double dinkied on the donkey? Well, on his little cart. as a little timber cart. Oh, okay. Yeah, timber wheels, a whole lot. And um, anyhow, he said, where do you want to go? I said, oh. I think I walked past a pub down there. Can we just go to the pub, a little Irish pub or something? He goes, oh, yeah, okay, I'll take you there. We got to the intersection, ready to turn left to the, the pub up there. And um, he said, oh, look, you can go to the pub, but it, it's not that interesting. You know, everyone goes to the pub. It's a touristy thing to do. He goes, why don't you come to the local markets with me? You go to the bazaar. I'll show you around there. I said, oh, yeah, all right. What's it? Okay, no worries. He goes, I'll get you a beer. And pulled into this little local tiny shop that was full of knickknacks and everything and anyway in the back they had beers in the fridge and they were big long long neck things and he bought half a dozen of them and we clambered back onto the cart and we just started wandering through the streets of Luxor on his donkey drinking long necks side by side and he was pointing <laughs> things out giving me a grand old tour it was great fun um we got off we did a bit of shopping at the markets and uh anyway it must have been a couple of hours and Six thirty, seven o'clock, or something at night, and he said, "Oh, I've I've got to go home and get ready um, for a wedding." I said, "Oh, yeah." He goes, "Do you want to come? You come, come to my place and meet the family and do this." And I said, "Oh, all right, I'd love to." And this is me in my naivety. This lonely planet would probably tell you, "Do not do this." I didn't read the Lonely Planet, so like I did. You're a pretty little white boy, like blonde hair, blue eyes. Like <laughs> he would have been like, "He'll fetch a fortune." Well, um, he might well have been thinking that. I did not know that at the time. He was wonderful. He's very entertaining. He was my age, a young bloke, sort of my build. Anyway, he took me home and we wound out of the city. So the city of Luxor was actually quite, it was quite lush. There's, you know, there's a lot of touristy areas in there and, and nice buildings and fancy shops. But as you get to the outskirts, it changes dramatically. It turns to brick mud buildings, no electricity. It's how I picture and the word slums come to mind. Um, and we wound out there and it was a stark contrast. I remember thinking it vividly. And anyway, we pulled up in the front of this mud brick house that just had a flat tin roof on it with an earth floor and we walked in and I was a little bit hesitant at that point. But sure enough, inside was his mum and dad, his grandparents, his uncle, his cousin. Actually, his cousin wasn't there yet. Anyway, had a beer, met the family, had a yarn, they welcomed me and then his cousin turned up and they had a big holler and hoo-ha and g'day and whatnot and they said, right, we've got to go to this wedding, come to the wedding with us. So all three of us saddled up on this donkey and cart next. We're all shoulder to shoulder and pretty tightly squeezed in there, wandering through the streets with no power and it's now getting dark Um, and we must have gone for half an hour, 45 minutes through the streets and it was well and truly dark by the time we got there but coming around – one 
I, th- I think it had a, you know, like a mud street and the clickety clack of the old timber wheels as we rounded the corner. They must have had a generator running because they had lights strung across the street, so it was actually lit up, and there would have been a hundred people there. It was it was a big party. It was interesting. The men and the women were segregated entirely. All the women were at the front, sat down facing the stage, and this is crammed into a street. Um, so there's probably fifty women, some were holding babies, sitting on their laps, and and very focused forward and very serious, not really chatting, and then. All the men were at the back standing up, drinking beers and smoking bloody joints, smoking marijuana in the streets. And I, <laughs> I thought, God, don't you get punished for that over here? And Anyway, apparently not, not where we were. And anyhow, I was there for a, a traditional Egyptian wedding for hours. It was fascinating to see how they celebrate it. The one thing I remember at the end that was pretty contrasting was uh, – the crowd or the crowd brought out the cake at the end of it and it was on a big table, a bit bigger than this table we're sitting at, cake in the middle and they danced around the crowd with it above their heads and they sat it down in front of the bride and groom who at that point were dancing. They stepped up onto the table, danced around the cake for a minute and then all of a sudden just kicked the hell out of the cake all over the crowd, all over each other. <laughs> Apparently that was a normal thing at the Did time. Did anyone eat the bits of cake? No, the f- cake was not eaten at all, no. It was just kicked oh, everywhere. I hate to think about a wasted cake. Yeah. It's a tragedy. Um, so that was that was the wedding that I got to go to. And then uh, at the end of that, everyone had a few beers and they said, right, let's saddle up and we'll head to the after party. We'll go go to town and go to the the club. And I thought, oh, all right, I suppose we can do that. And no, it's getting a bit weary at this point. It was probably close to midnight. Went to the club, which was a belly dancing club. And... Uh, Anyhow, that was that was funny. There was all these great big old rich Egyptian men with these women dancing around them, and it was well to me. I, I thought it was pretty bloody awful. They would they had cash in their pockets. They would literally, as the girls would dance around them, they just place the money on their head and let it fall down all around them. And the girls dance, and then at the end of the dance, they would all go and pick up their their cash and wander off and get a bit of a cheer. And that's what it is. Um, and so anyway, I had a quick look at that and thought, right, boys, it's time to go home. Can you take me back to town? Away we go. Yeah, 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 no worries, boys, we go. And so we all got on the donkey and cart again. And, uh, we started heading again through these slums. So we were away from town, away from the shops, away from lights and electricity and everything. And, you know, for as late as it was, in the night, I remember and, and having my wits about me enough that I just felt we were heading in the wrong direction. We were heading away from town. And I didn't say anything for a, for a fair while um, until there was one point we had to cross a bit of a creek, a culvert that had a bridge over it and it was dry. There was no water in there. We went down the bank um, into this creek and under the bridge. And I'm like, fellas, what are we doing? Like, Are we heading home? I feel like we're heading the wrong way. They pulled up and they said, no, no, you pay us now and then we'll take you home. And I said, oh, okay. Oh, and the, the important part of the, at the very beginning, we agreed to a price and I, I'd asked him how much and he said, oh, one pound an hour. I said, okay, one pound an hour and I can't actually remember what that converts to, but in my head it was five bucks an hour or something, Aussie. Um, and 
anyhow, they said, yeah, you pay us now and we take you home. And I sort of did a quick calculation, think it might be 100 bucks or whatever it was. And they said, okay, 4,000 pounds. <laughs> that was my reaction. I said, oh, yeah, good on you, boys. Yeah. No, really, how much do you want? And they said, 4,000 pounds. I was like, are you serious? And they said, we're deadly serious. You pay us 4,000 pounds now, we kill you. And I, yeah, oh, I, I'm laughing during this. That story. was me. That was my reaction. And I thought that would joke. I was like, nah, boy, seriously, like, what are we doing? And I said, no, nah, you pay us now. No one knows you're here. You Aussie bastard. We fucking, well, we kill you and we dump you here. No one knows you're here. Well, then you, you ain't getting any now. money. So good luck. I've yeah. got like 20 bucks cash on me. Have at it. Yeah. So, uh, there, I literally had to be, I said, mate, I don't have 4,000 pounds on me. How do you think I'm going to pay you? You're going to have to get me back to an ATM or something. And at that point, they cracked it and they got pretty angry. Well, they think you just walk around with 4,000 pounds cash on you. Exactly. Um, and so then, then, uh, they grabbed me and they, they started to bloody tussle a bit, but <gasps> we had to go to the boss's place and to go and get this settled. And like the dad? I don't know who, don't know who it was, but we went to a house. We got off the, the cart and I was dragged into a taxi. Um, the cousin left, but there are about four other blokes that got in the taxi with us, got driven all through the, the back streets to someone else's house, which turned out to be the boss. And they're like, he decided whether you live or die. And then they dragged me out by my neck out of the taxi and threw me up against the wall. And these four or five blokes that had jumped in with me, they all went inside the house and upstairs. While I was out the front with the bloke who originally picked me up on the on the donkey, this young fella who I'd had a great time with, thought he was my mate, and then I I was a bit fired up. I was like, "What are you doing to me? Why have you done this? And what's going on?" And then he fired up because he actually he'd been smoking bloody weed. weed and had a few beers, and so he was quite groggy. And then he got angry and he's like, "You cost me four thousand pounds. You make me look bad. All these things." He pulled a knife out and put it to my throat while I was up against the wall. And at that point, I snapped. I just something clicked in me, and I panicked, and I grabbed him, sort of by the collar and the shoulders, and just one of those things. I don't know how it happened, but it was so quick. And I grabbed him and spun, and threw him against this wall. And he clocked his head, and he fell to the ground. And I let go of him. I was just looking down at him. I thought, Jesus, what just happened? And I thought, Well, don't stop here. And so I took off. I just started running, and. Um, yeah, I could hear the kerfuffle behind me. Like they were all racing downstairs, screaming and all running behind me. And I thought, this is it. They're going to catch me and I'm done. And like clockwork, this bloody scooter peeled around the corner in front of me. I could just see these lights coming towards me. I had my arms in the air, waving, hollering, saying, save me, help me, all this. And um, it, it turned out to be two guys on a scooter and they pulled up and they had Eyes like dinner plates looking at me and I was like, they're going to kill me and they're racing up behind me. They both jumped off their scooter, pushed me to the scooter and stepped in front of me and held all these blokes up. Anyway, there was a big kerfuffle there and they were bartering back and forwards and they came to me and said, these guys say that you owe them money. I was like, yeah, a hundred bucks. And um, he said, no, no, they, they say you owe 4,000 pounds. And I was like, no. Nah. It was a pound an hour and then they went back and they said, uh, yeah, that was a Luxor pound. 
And I said, so, a Luxor pound? What's a Luxor pound? And it turns out the conversion works out to be 4,000 Egyptian pounds. Oh. But the Luxor currency hasn't been in circulation for however many years, and apparently this is the trick that they do you to the tourists. sneaky mother. Yeah. And I said, I haven't got any money. Well, I've got 100 bucks or whatever it was. And they said, whatever's in your wallet, grab it, give it to them. I passed it over and they said, get on the scooter quick. And all three of us jumped on the scooter and I was on the back hanging on for dear life. And, and it could have been just as bad, but they, no, they were the real deal. And they took me home. They got me home at, I don't know, three, four o'clock in the morning after all that. Yes. So, uh, read your lonely planet or guides or whatever it is, the advice, the local advice. I'm just speech like. Don't jump on a donkey. I had, had um, I love that that started with me being like, everyone, if you're not, if you're single and don't have a mortgage, do what Munro did, just go overseas and make it up as you go. Then you told that story, like, all right, guys, do what Munro did in theory, but learn from this lesson. Don't do it exactly how he did it. Were you, and it sounds like you were genuinely frightened at that at some point in time during that experience? Yeah, the taxi part was where it really turned on for me. Okay. Yeah. Because I'm just Where thinking, all the other guys got in and this bloke decides whether you live or die, that was. Because the rest, like your last episode, any time I was like, <gasps> you're like, oh, no, I wasn't worried. I wasn't scared. Like it was like nothing could phase you. And I'm like, dear God, please let this man be sane enough to say that at least this situation phased him <laughs> somewhat. Yeah, that one got me a bit. That is um, – um, but, like, I guess the other thing is is they he knew what hotel you were at. Yeah. So, did you change hotels or, like, get out of there? Like oh, I was, was gone the next day. I was on a bus. Yeah. Um, and it was a local bus. It wasn't a, a touristy bus. And that was actually pretty terrifying in itself. Actually, we went from there and headed north across into the Sinai Peninsula and across to – oh, what is that place called? Um, not going to remember it at the moment. But on the Red Sea anyway. Do you – I'm just going to do a conversion now, and this is obviously – I don't know what the – obviously the currency rate would have been a lot different. Oh, it must, it must have been something different because 4,000 Egyptian pounds is – oh, no, because it's not an Egyptian pound. It was a luxury so, pound. So if it had been an Egyptian pound, that would be 192 Australian dollars today. There you but go. I wonder if you can um, – if go, oh, it doesn't have – let me Google Luxor pound. Pound conversion. One, oh, British pound is four Luxor. Oh, yeah, Luxor to pound sterling is, f- this is confusing, oh, guys. isn't that much. Maybe they were just extorting me. No, whatever it was, because, no, that's just. Yeah, so the con- oh, this some I don't know if this all this is a crypto website, but it's saying the conversion value value for one thousand lux, assuming that's the same thing, is about three hundred US dollars. So they would have wanted about a grand US, which probably was like a grand and a half Australian. Oh, there you go. So yeah, that is so sneaky. And also, like, how did you not have PTSD? And also, did you have a phone that had? If you had a phone, then wouldn't have been a smartphone, probably. Oh, there would have been some early iPhones out then. Oh, yeah. Yeah, because I – yeah, I got an iPhone, my first one in 2012, and I was quite late to the party. Oh, no, I tell you what, I wouldn't have, no, because I remember buying a Canon camera in Cairo because I didn't have a phone that had a camera. 
There you go. And I was going to say, you would have maybe some international roaming, but it would have been – like, I'm just wondering if you had gotten, like, lost, lost, um, yeah, like, would you have been able to call for help? I'm like, you – I think on your next big overseas trip, which is in a month and a half or something, six weeks, whatever, and you're going to Japan, is it Israel? Mm-hmm. You've got a whole bunch of different Singapore, countries. I think – Munro should maybe take a spot tracker and an EPIRB. <laughs> so one of our sponsors, GME, <laughs> plug, hey, GME, I have their EPIRB. Um, amazing. And I think you probably should not go anywhere without some kind of like microchip. Well, I'll, I'll be with enough ill group there. Yeah, that, um, I, I don't know. Like, you know, this is like 15 years down the track. I'm sure you're older and wiser, but I just don't. Like, how do you not have PTSD from something like that? How do you process that? I guess the adrenaline. Yeah. Oh my. Anyway, that is um. This is this is why I don't know. It doesn't it doesn't work with anyone else, but with you making these episodes up on the fly just seems to really work because you're just coming out with these yarns like before. And I was like, all right, what are we going to talk about in this episode? Like, and you're like, I don't remember anything, but it just (laughs) comes up to you. And I can't believe you were going to skip over that. And be like, oh, yeah, I went to Europe for six months, came back, and then rah, rah. No, no, don't skip those kind of – that is – wow. I just – also, bad man, I just want to go there and be like, shame on you. Yeah. Like, we've heard of people, you know, go and sell some fake Gucci or something if you want to rip people off. Like, I'm, su- I'm surprised they didn't just, like, sell you at a bazaar or something. Like, anyway. You okay. sell me at a bazaar. Yeah. Yeah. Like, just, you know, look at this little – White, blue-eyed, you know, man with a funny accent. You know? <laughs> Slave trade is a real thing, um, or human trafficking. Not that obviously bad. Don't do that, anybody. But that, I mean, all sorts of things could happen to you. But also, I, I wonder if they actually. I mean, I wouldn't put it past them to actually kill you. But if they did that, how are they going to get their money? Like maybe it was empty threats. I don't know. Yeah. Oh, I wonder how often they do that to people because. And what they use, because I don't know if you have a wedding every day, unless they have fake weddings every day for that. Like, <laughs> imagine if the whole thing They're going to a lot of trouble to uh, get a bit of money out of you, oh aren't they? Oh, my God. Anyway, okay. Um, yeah, wow. So, moving on. Um, I think I'd initially asked you about how you ended up working at a vineyard. So, came back from six uh, months overseas, had a bit of an early, not midlife, early life, what am I doing crisis? Like. Yeah, I, I had a decision to make. Am I coming south or am I staying north? Um, and it was one of those times where I thought, right, I, I will have a crack at staying south. Um, and I, I don't know how I lined this job up. I think I feel like a straw mate. But as soon as I got home, there was a, a vintage job going. I thought, right, I need cash. I'll just take that. I'll, I'll do a, a harvest, a, a vintage. This um, decision to go, do I stay north or come south? And then I'm going to have a crack at staying south. Is that... It just sounded like the way you said it, that it's like up north, keep roaming, having fun, it's nothing too serious, but you come down south to kind of like pull your socks up, settle down, have a serious job, that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. Because I feel like that's a common, um, not misconceptions, that's not the right word, but a common like, oh, yeah, up north is just for a bit of fun, it's just a big gap year, which for a it lot, is, of, it for is. A lot so, of people yeah. it really is. And but it's, it's interesting that when spot. you people thought- People come up for a year or two and then end up going home because that's what you do. I find that really interesting that when you're like, okay, it's time for me to be serious now. Oh, if I'm going to be serious, I've got to do that down south. 
like you can't be serious up north. Yeah, no, really, it was but, like that, and that I it, that was in the back of my mind. Is yeah. was eventually I've got to go south and get serious. Yeah, um, but the territory had its hooks in me. I I did the vintage, which I don't know might have been a month or six weeks, however long that goes for, um, and that was the first real cold weather system I'd been through in in years, and that first cold snap came through, and that. Uh, Made me rethink pretty quickly, and um, it was Pete actually. The it was my manager from Annabaru. He'd moved to Banban Springs. He'd taken on the management there. Um, I think this was his first season, and he said, "Oh, we've got a big job ahead of us. We've got a lot of bulls to clean up." And um, he said, "What are you doing? Do you want to come up for the season up here and and give us a hand cleaning up these bulls?" I was cold, I was shivering, I was in Kurnawara, wasn't ready to go through a winter and quick decision. I, I said, yep, buddy, oath, I'll be up there. When do you need me? Um, yeah, so I wrapped up the uh, the vintage pretty quickly and then I, I drove straight back up. This time I did have my dog. So I guess that decision of got to be serious or, or keep doing what I'm doing, you kind of were like, oh, maybe it's not time yet to be serious. <laughs> Yeah, it was a combination of things. It was, um, it was the weather was a big thing, to be honest. I'm miserable in cold weather. I'm hopeless for it. And then working for Pete, I love Pete. He was a big role model for me when I was at Annabaroo, um, and had a great relationship with him. And then this next job that he'd taken on sounded really exciting. And I thought, oh, just give it one more season and, and go and do that. And so, yeah, north I went again. Did the season at Banban and God, then where did we go? This chronological thing. It, no, I will hard, bugger it. I do. So, so sorry. How long did the the, did the vineyard thing work uh, last for? Oh, only a couple of months, if that. Six weeks, maybe. <laughs> cool. For memory, it was it was just grape <laughs> so, harvest and settling down really worked out well for you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, seasonal work. Um, you also at some stage went so you've done the, the cattle boats but you also went on other kind of boats as well tell me about that all right and that's where we leave you for part two now don't hate me that i split it into part two and three but part three is up right now so you can just switch on over and listen to that episode too by the way i wasn't lying when i said there were some pretty wild yarns in there hey <laughs>